Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Your usual crew here today, J.J. Cooper, joined by John Manuel. Our final podcast of 2012. And probably more importantly, our first podcast after sending the Prospect Handbook to the printer. That probably is more significant. It was a late night, a uh, great week this week with uh, having Jim Callis in the office. It meant some fun, some fun lunch runs and some fun uh, old stories, but it also meant Jim banging out the Cubs, everybody finishing. Uh, the best part about the end of the handbook, just how everybody pitches in and everybody's proofing and everybody's cutting pages and everyone's pulling together to get that book out the door. And uh, it got out the door on time, which is – did not seem possible four days ago, I have to admit. It uh, did not seem possible, J.J. Uh, I like how Lingo puts it. Will Lingo says, you know, he's gotten to the point now. And and Will Lingo, we have two uh, editors-in-chief, John and Will, and and I think John would agree. Will is the uh, the placid, the more placid of the two. John's, yeah. John brings the energy. Will brings the everyone stay calm. We're for, yeah, he's, he's definitely more like the keep calm and carry on. I'm kind of like, holy crap, they're dropping bombs on us. And, <laughs> you know, so. and But Will, you know, in his column, which will be up on the site, which was in the issue we just sent to press not long ago, made the point that he's gotten to the point where he just realizes it'll all finish up. There will always be a point not long before the end of the prospect handbook where it's like, well, we get this thing done. And when Will sends out the email late in the process, like, okay, like Will and Jim will both send out like, this has to get done right now. Emails. Those are that's when everybody takes it up a couple of notches. Right. I, I, this always you always don't want to get you you want to not be one of the recipients of the this has to finish now. Right. You know emails. Well, last Sunday, so I think it was. So what's today? The twentieth. Today's a uh, Wednesday. I'm to Thursday. Think. Today's 17th. Thursday. Yeah, but I'm trying to think of the date. I guess December tenth was a transaction deadline, and then like the next day was when Trevor Bauer got traded. That was a big three-way trade that we discussed mm-hmm. on the last podcast. So Trevor Bauer for the book is still a Diamondback, and Travis Darno is still a Blue Jay. Will Myers is a Ray. Will Myers is a Ray, but that that happened beforehand. So there are few, uh, there are few prospects who are on different teams. They're all easy to find at the back of the book in the, and the index. Other, and the other great thing about that is is what, where we worked. This is where the new thing we added last year. Exactly, the that's where I was going. Yep, plays a part. Uh, that's uh, that's the best thing about. Uh, about the trade, and I actually should have. Br- I wish I'd brought my spreadsheet. Maybe you remember JJ. JJ is uh, uh, helps uh, coordinate all the grades, where he's kind of like the czar of the BA grades as far as putting them, assembling them all in a spreadsheet, 
and then saying, wait, is this guy's grade too high because these two guys are very similar players? Like, okay, all the backup catchers need to have similar grades. Right. All the relief pitchers need to have similar grades because that's, you know, when you're talking about ceiling, realistic ceilings, those need to line up. And that was probably, to me, J.J., that was actually the most fun part about the oh, handbook. Oh, that was a fun. Was that Tuesday? I think yeah. it was just Tuesday afternoon, basically. J.J., after two aborted attempts to come in my office where he came around the corner with his Enormo laptop, <laughs> the opposite of the MacBook Air. No, it's, yeah. J.J. It's came around MacBook the corner with, with his really big laptop ready to come in my office. I was like, I can't do it now. I'm editing something else. I forget what I was in the middle of. But um, finally, on the third try, came in. We just sat down, and we really probably should have recorded that as a podcast. It would have been like some Tommy Lasorda outtakes with just random F-words thrown in for no reason by me. But uh, that was a good hour and a half, two hours of just going over basically 900-player grades. And that was fun. That was fun. That was how we roll at Baseball America. That was a very I mean, to fun give day. You, I'm trying to think. Let's, let's pull out one snippet, like one guy, like to give an example. Well, there are two shortstops from the 2012 draft who are the biggest bones of contention. That Jim and I carried this over. And those are Nolan Fontana and Devin Marrero. And I would also throw in a third shortstop, Jose Iglesias, who were very difficult to categorize. Because for the purposes of the book, we really do most draft picks who make the book are 50 highs. Or worse. Uh, or th- th- Yeah, but, that, but, I still, but most. The vast majority who make the book are 50 right, highs. Because to make There's the book some, as a draft pick, a 2012 draft pick, you have to be pretty yeah, promising. Otherwise, you're not making the book. There's some who make it as 50 extremes. There's some who might make it as a 45 high in a bad organization. And then the top 10 to 15 guys get better the grades than 50 high. They get 55 highs. Carlos Correa get, is a better than a 50 high. They get 55 extremes. They get 60 extremes like Joey Gallo. But those three guys, those two shortstops in particular, were very difficult choices, Devin Marrero and Nolan Fontana. And I'll make one admission here that if I would known what grade we're going to wind up slapping on Nolan Fontana, I wouldn't have ranked him in the Astros' top ten. I'm convicted on Nolan Fontana. I think he was one of the five safest players in the 2012 draft. I believe he will be a big leaguer. I believe he'll be a big league shortstop for a short time. Um, I I think he's going to have a David Eckstein floor for his career, which is I think, to me, is a 50. Mm -hmm. And I think is a very safe chance that that will be his floor. I think he could be a little bit better than that because he runs similar to Eckstein, a little bit more pop than Eckstein ever had, and he's left-handed, doesn't hurt. I think he's actually a little bit better defender at shortstop, better better uh, throwing arm. Um, so to me, that's his floor. So I thought he was a medium. I thought he should have been a 50 medium, but I frankly could not convince you or Jim that he should be a 50 medium. So I forget what grade he frankly ended up with. He's either a 45 low or he's a 50 high. I don't even remember now. He might uh, be a 45 medium. I forget what he is, but he shouldn't – but with his grade, I would not have put him in the top ten over Domingo Santana and, and or Jonathan Villar. And let's make something clear. This is a, a, a worthwhile point. Because I think his How ceiling we, is higher than you guys do. Right. How we assemble him. I see him personally, and I say, okay, him and Christian Colon, there's a lot of to similar me, there are a lot of similar prospects. They're very similar prospects. Yep. You may think that Fontana has a slightly better chance of sticking at shortstop I do. than Colon. You may at the same time think that Colon – if you rewound the clock a little bit, may have a little bit more bat than uh, absolutely, absolutely true. And that's you know that to where I you know say okay, where do having gone through the Christian Cologne you know career arc right now, yeah, I that probably is a reason that I was a little lower on him, and especially like when you compare him to a guy like okay, 
Devin Morero versus him. I do think Devin Morero is there's a lot of similarities there. There there's some differences. There are some similarities as far as ceiling there. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities with between Morero and Fontana. Morero does it easier. He's slicker. He has a higher ceiling with his right. bat. But to me, when you look at his track record, he's really only done it offensively the one time, the, the, the big summer in 2011. And you, and it was a big summer. He hit you know, with Wood but, in the Cape. But, he hit with Wood in Team USA. But you and I both worry that's a, a very short track record compared to you have think, a, a multi-year college career. I think so. I think teams really put too much stock in what happens in the Cape because of the – when you – the way I say they put too much stock in what happens in the Cape is guys who only perform in the Cape right, and don't perform otherwise. If that's the confirmation that's of what you right. saw, or if that basically you go, okay, this guy's got good power, but how's that power going to translate to wood? And then he hits for power in the Cape? Absolutely. Right. That's one a confirmation of what you were seeing. Right. One of my favorite uh, examples of that was, uh, I forget what year it was. It was, might have been 2000. Um, I won't do it, but I think it was the, the year, year 2000. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I think it was in the year 2000 with Luke Scott and Doc Brooks were the two guys who hit the most home runs in the Cape that summer, Doc Brooks. Now, of course, there's a couple of differences between those two guys. Scott's left-handed, Brooks is right-handed. I'm guessing that Doc Brooks may have voted for Barack Obama, and I know that Luke Scott didn't. And the the substantive difference in baseball terms is that Doc Brooks was a right-right guy, and that didn't help him, and Luke Scott was a left-handed. But also, Doc Brooks never hit at Georgia. And Luke Scott did hit at Oklahoma State, and so he won. I mean, that's just two guys who, in my mind, one guy ended up being a big leaguer. One guy played for the South Georgia Peanuts. In right, the, it uh, was co- it was managed by is infamous on YouTube when you look up Wally Backman ejections. This Doc Brooks is at the plate, and Wally yes. Backman goes berserk. Great take, great reminder. But I mean, like that's one that just sticks out in my head. At the time, I think we thought that Doc Brooks was the better player. Our scouting reports or the people that we had talked to at that time thought Doc Brooks was the better but, prospect. It turned out to be Luke Scott. And one of the things that I remember stood out was that Luke Scott also hit in college. He didn't just do it in the Cape. So that's one thing I've been I've right. looked for since then. And I, I think it holds true. Guys who just blow up in the Cape, if they don't sustain that the next spring and don't do it when they're using metal bats and they're facing less good pitching, I don't think it matters as much that they blew up in the Cape. I love this. Maybe I should study that that's instead of just have a hunch. It's an interesting I'm, question. I'm looking but, to you, to, to, to you, our listeners, to do that research. But, but no, it, it is something where it's fun to put the book together. It's also fun. Like Those hey, are fun discussions. It's fun discussions. I, I guess really the message we're trying to say is we really care about this book. I mean, right. obviously. And it is the most labor-intensive thing in many ways that we do, but we think it pays off. I mean, we, you know, if you order it now, you know, I'll do the little commercial here. Yeah, do it. If you order it now. We're, you know, it's not here yet. You're not going to get it for Christmas. Let me make that clear. But it's not. If you order it from us, you'll get it first. And you get the supplement. And you'll get a 31st prospect. And by the way. Which we're finishing today. We're finishing that today. And there's a lot of guys who finished ranked number 31 on list who I, I think are pretty intriguing guys. I mean, there are some legit prospects on that. I mean, like some of these organizations are pretty deep. The Astros, uh, one of the organizations I do, I, I wrote up like 36 guys. And some of them aren't, you know, obviously there are like four or five of these scouting reports that aren't going to appear in the book or uh, in the supplement. And those guys are prospects that our listeners know. I'd written up, uh, I think, 33 or 34 Royals. They all got in because That's the right. trade happened right before the deadline. So, And all of our extra Blue Jays wound up uh, getting in because of their trades. And that's even not counting the Darno trade. Because well, that's one of the things when you're we're doing this, 
if you have a deep system, and uh, the Astros are very the Astros depth this year. It's amazing how they've gone from they were just five years ago, three years ago they were the worst farm system. It's almost like you've never seen in your and life. Where you're writing up guys in the 20s who you are writing them up and saying this guy has almost no hope of being a big leaguer. I think you are. You probably are right. Five years ago, I think was the year that Jim wrote up Johnny Ash and uh, Matt Cusick, two guys that he knew. We're never going to be prospects. But you have to yeah. write 30. They had to write 30. I, that we, we've made the joke that you will not have a 35 in the book. I yeah, don't, those guys would have been 35s. And, and I've always said with that, it's like, don't ever say never. Right. Because that is a guy who you could say, you know, like if you re- rewound the clock. That's it. That very well may have been a, a 35 I think medium. Matt Cusick and John, and I love Johnny Ash. <laughs> I loved Johnny Ash in his Astros days, but and well, he wasn't even number thirty. Jimmy Van Ostrand, who did who, make the big leagues, I do believe. Did he? Uh, he's been a hero for Canada in World Baseball Classic. I may player. be wrong on that. That's just I thought I remember him getting a. a call. Also has a tremendous Twitter handle at Doctor Van Ostrand, which was a great, uh, <laughs> great Twitter handle. But all these guys at the back of this list. I mean, who was the front of this list? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not finding a big Mark McLemore. I think was an Wesley up and down Wright, big Rule leaguer. Yeah, Wesley Wright, up and down, big leaguer, big league lefty. Bogusevic had to just had converted to outfield. He was ranked as a pitcher Tom that Manzella. year. Yeah, he was awful. But he did. <laughs> he did get there. They just released Sergio Perez. There's Chris Johnson, who was a solid big leaguer this year. Oh, top ten, no good. Eli Orge. Bud oh my gosh. And yeah. then you get to the top five, Michael Bourne. Juan Gutierrez having a nice winter ball this year. I mean, Michael Bourne by far the best player yeah. on this list. By far. But the point is is that – This is a bad top but 30. The point is, is, and we digress, but, you know, that that is – there's years like that where you're going, okay, man, just who do I put as 30 on this list? Or you write up guys – the Reds list this year, basically at the back end of the run, I was writing up the Reds. You're writing up guys who either have low ceilings or are long, 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 long way away. Right. And then, but you on the flip side, when you have a team like the Astros this year, I've had some with the Royals, you end up writing up more guys than you need to rank because you really kind of finish up your idea. You don't often, to me at least, when I'm doing it for the process, I know where scouts and all would kind of put these guys on their list and all, but it's when you write a guy up that you end up going, Sometimes you go, man, I, I can't rank that guy. Or sometimes exactly. you go, I got to move this guy up. Right, absolutely, and I, I think that's where the grades also help. So, and the and the grades help with the trades. Uh, probably a good, as good a place to segue as any into the trades and uh, of the NL East. Uh, JJ, let's. I know we're not going in alphabetical order here, but uh, the Mets are. You know, the Mets are the Mets. They're in New York. They're an intriguing franchise. For they're the, they're the, one of the more intriguing bad franchises in sports with the Jets, of course, being the least intriguing one, but the one that gets talked about the most. Um, but the Mets made a lot of news this week with the R.A. Dickey trade. And here's where the grades would come some in handy, but who would you rank as the Mets' number one prospect now? Zach Wheeler or Travis Darno? I'm uh, going Zach Wheeler. I like Travis Darno a lot, but I'm going Zach Wheeler. Zach Wheeler's it's Zach funny, Wheeler's like we just did our, prospect, just did our personal top 50s, Yeah, and I know those two guys were close enough on there that I can't remember which one I put ahead of. But those, I don't remember either, but uh, my gut says Zach Wheeler. The gut says is that... I believe in that I guy. I think I put Darnold, and the reason I say that is is I believe in both these guys. Hitter over pitcher, I can see that one. But not just hitter over pitcher, but really with Darnold, to me the only big concerns are 
as far as him, not whether he's going to be an all-star, a great catcher, all those things. But if you said, is this guy going to be a big league regular, a solid big league regular catcher, my big concern on that is can he stay healthy. Right. If he can stay healthy, I think that he's going to be really the the, the Mets have had some horrid catchers in yeah. recent years. He'll be the best catcher they've had in a while. Since Todd Hundley, maybe? Like eh. they did have post Hundley was Piazza. Oh, yeah. I forgot about Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza was pretty good. I, I'm sorry. I never think of him as a Met. I know <laughs> I should. I never think of him as a Met. I think of him as a mullet, and I think of him as a Dodger. But Since, but, Todd, since Mike Piazza, who have they had? Mike Nickius? Josh Tolley? <laughs> I mean, they, but my, my point being that he is – I think his floor is – as a very solid floor because he's solid defensively. He's going to have some pop at least. He's I think gonna he's hit got a lot of pop. He's going to hit for some average at least. Really, the question is, is that at this point you can go, okay, he's had a back injury. He's had a hand injury. Had he's a had a concussion. concussion yeah. He's had a knee injury. The, there's been a whole lot of things that you could say, okay, that's a concern. But right. take that a part of it. You know, he, he is – he's a very – He's one of the safer prospects out there right now. He's no Christian Yelich safe, but he's pretty yep. close. Right. I mean, to me, uh, if the injury issue is the only thing that really makes you question him ceiling-wise. The the other thing to me is just, uh, you know, the defense. Uh, the scouting report on him has always been good defensive tools. Uh, defensive performance has always been a little bit iffy for him, and I think that's why the Blue Jays made this move, besides obviously to get R.A. Dickey, but why you throw him in is if you're going to contend in 2013, and obviously their chips are all in the middle of the table right now, it's just you're less likely to do that with a rookie catcher than you are with right. a third or fourth you know year veteran. You, you know more what you're going to get, and you know the weaknesses that you get with JPR and CBA, but you exactly. also know the strengths. I mean, like I think we all acknowledge JPR and CBA has significant flaws, but he has some strengths. He's not a terrible defender. He's a solid defender, and he does have big power, and he's he's going to cripple mistakes. And the great thing about it in their lineup now is is that. If you're batting him seventh, yeah, he's a good seven eight hole hitter. I, I think. He, I mean, if you had to, you could bat him six. He's a to me, like seventh though is that perfect spot for him where you say, you know what, he's going to run into enough mistake pitches. Right, he's dangerous. That he's going to provide some value at the plate. Yeah, you know, and it's going to also make a lot of outs. We know that too. But yeah, yes. But, but no, I thought that. And if I, you're going to get, and if you have to trade R. A. Dickey, like the Mets apparently decided they had to do, they were at this impasse in terms of extending him. I think it made sense from their standpoint to trade him when you see what pitchers are getting, the value they got for a, uh, a pitcher with a $5 million well, contract. They got pretty significant value for him. So very similar to what the uh, Indians were able to do, leveraging just the one more year of Shinshu Chu to get Trevor Bauer. The Mets were able to leverage really one more year of Ari Dickey into uh, you know Travis Darno, arguably the best catching prospect. I think I ranked Mike Zunino, Zunino ahead of him, but but those two are right together. They're right together, and uh, and that uh, that's a pretty great return for the Mets. So either way, their farm system have got a whole lot better. Well, I think their franchise got a whole lot better. We haven't mentioned you know that that's that's only that's only part of what they got. Right, and I'm not talking about. Josh Tolley, you know, Josh Tolley, Mike Nick right. the Blue Jay. Right. We're talking about, no, you know, they also brought in, I mean, I, I can't remember our Blue Jays, but the top Noah Syndergaard was uh, number three, I believe, but I could be wrong. I think it was, Dar- I thought it was, no, he was number two. I think it was Darno, then Syndergaard, then Sanchez, and Nicolina. The best way if you were, now they're, now we really can't say the Blue Jays pitching prospects, but back when they were the group together. Right. Syndergaard, what you describe him as, is the best combination of stuff and feel. Yeah, and he, and he has big time stuff. I mean, this guy's fastball is a, you know, it's a like a seven fastball. I mean, it's a ninety three to ninety eight miles an hour. 
It was great area scouting by the Blue Jays, uh, who, you know, according to all of, our, all of our information, really don't necessarily look to their area scouts as evaluators. They trust their cross-checkers and the guys at the line to evaluate. Their area scouts are there to evaluate, but also to get that makeup, to find out signability, all those kind of things. Well, their area scout, uh, I don't have the name in front of me, but I, I know he, Nathan Rohde's always written about the credit that he's Go to the top ten gotten. while we're doing this. Right. It's on our, uh... right, that's where I'm headed. But, uh, but you know, they, they get a lot of credit for, you know, being higher on Noah Syndergaard than most people were, and that paid off for them. And uh, so that had to be hard for them to part with, um, even to get R.A. Dickey. So that just tells you how convicted, again, they are in, well, in this trade. This is one of those trades to me that, that makes a whole lot of sense uh, on both ends because if you're the Blue Jays, what you are now means more than what you – I mean, you, you are, yeah. as you said, the chips are in. I mean, you are saying, okay – Let's go for it in 2013. And you added the NL Cy Young winner. And what I like about it is also that they're striking while the American League East is weak. And I think that's the way to do it. And that makes a lot of sense. Steve Miller. Steve Miller, we both got there at the same time. I believe he's now a cross-checker. But, yeah, I think it's – I think it makes sense to strike now, especially once you go get Jose Reyes and you go get Josh Johnson and Mark Burley. So, I mean, the, the Blue Jays uh, definitely are there. I mean, I, they won the offseason, J.J. Now, what, whether that means they win in 2013, we'll see. But they won the offseason. I think that's over. is that the AL East, for the first time you could remember, I mean, really can remember, the teams that usually are the ones making the biggest splashes, the Yankees are just doing what can what are the minor moves we can do to make sure that we can get under that pay, you know, the, the – uh, 2014, 2014 189 million dollar payroll tax uh, which I, and I, you know I don't I can't I can't say that I wouldn't do the same thing if I were them no, the, the financial hit they would take is enormous and but. the financial savings that they will right. get if they don't is enormous so you you see them doing that though everything they're doing is just okay can we bring you in for a year right you know we're going to get you you know we need you out of here a year from now all that the red Sox are really kind of piecing, putting the pieces back together after dismantling. Uh, yeah, I mean, has the Napoli signing become official yet? I can't remember if that had or not. But I mean, like the Ryan Dempster signing, Shane Victorino, they've they've thrown around a lot of money at guys who aren't in their prime. It's a very, it's been a, on the Stephen Drew signing, has been to me the best thing the Red Sox have done this off season. It's a one year deal. You know, you're somewhat familiar with the the family, at least. I mean, I don't. I think having JD Drew doesn't necessarily help you have special insight into Stephen Drew. It probably gives you a little. At least Stephen Drew knows what he's getting into going to Boston. Uh, but that makes sense for Boston rather than going into next year with Jose Iglesias, you know, with a guaranteed one three putouts, um, three times a game. So I think that was a, that, that's the best thing Boston's done this offseason. We both were talking about before JJ. It's been a somewhat inert offseason in Baltimore. Which is fascinating to me because you have a team that, by every explanation, uh, it was a great season, and they also played probably over their head, but you can always try to reinforce success. And I don't even saying that they needed to make five moves or anything like that, but there's some pretty clear holes on that team. And if you say... When you see the Kendrick Morales get traded, you th- like you said, he would have looked pretty good in Baltimore in that DH spot. Um, maybe playing a little first base with Chris Davis, especially after they lost... Mark Reynolds, you do kind of. It almost feels like right now they're going to replace Mark Reynolds with Nate McLouth and Nolan Reimold, and maybe that'll work. But, 
Uh, it just feels like that's a team that yeah. could have used a, a bigger, one more big bat. The, the only other team out there that's made a big move this offseason in the AL East is the Rays, I'd say. You're, but sure. the Rays moves, really your, your argument that is you're hoping, the Rays are making those moves more for we hope to maintain. That's not that you think that by getting rid of James Shields and Wade Davis and bringing in Will Myers that you're going to be, and Jacob Arizzi and, and all those, that you're going to be a better team necessarily in 2013. What it means is is that you have now moved your window the window doesn't close as quickly, right? Yeah, <laughs> and the big move for the uh, for the Orioles this off season has been picking up Trayvon Robinson. I mean, that's just it's strange. It's just a strange. It's been a strange off season in that in that division and in the NL East. You know, the other you have you know the Braves made their big move early. They got BJ Upton, and pretty much since then they've been kind of like, okay, we're the Braves. They have their limited local TV money, and. Yeah, JJ will for the next 20 years. Right, and their improvements seem like they have to come internally. Two things with the Braves that are fascinating to me is two of their more intriguing prospects have had these intriguing winter balls. you got Evan Gaddis with about an 840 OPS in Venezuela. He's second in the Venezuelan League at home, runs with 13. Which, uh, and this is an NLE-specific question, which older right, right slugger do you like better for 2013 and beyond? Evan Gaddis with the Braves? Left fielder slash catcher slash sooner than later when the National League adopts the designated hitter, the DH, or Darren Ruff, first base slash left field slash DH. Which of, of the Phillies? You have Evan Gaddis, who has his own backstory, and then, you know, Darren Ruff, who in terms of prospectiness was basically like, yeah, he's a nice org player until August. I got to say Gaddis, and there's a couple reasons for that. Um, and. Please, all you Babe Ruth fans, Babe Ruth fans, just you know, just yep. please, you know, I understand. Sum it down it. now. Yeah, but for one, Gaddis is a better athlete. And I agree. You're, you're talking about a guy who I don't think he's a big league catcher, but he there's at least you could entertain the idea of him being a big league catcher. As an outfielder, it seems like you're saying, okay, he could do that. Like Darren Ruff, you can put him in the outfield. You understand? You're just hoping that the bat would make up for. The limitations you're going to have out there. Yeah, Darren Ruff was talking about trying to learn left field uh, at the winter meetings when he got the Joe Bauman Award, and he, you can tell he still has a lot to learn about just playing left field. I do think that Darren Ruff will be helped by the fact that Ryan Howard, unless Ryan Howard like really bounces back significantly in 2013, I think Darren Ruff's going to wind up getting some PT at first base. Oh. Somehow they're well, going to have to work him in there because I know Darren, I know Howard's contract is really difficult, but. I mean, at least as a platoon option at first base, I think Darren Ruff's going to get some time against left-handed hitter, uh, okay. pitchers. Well, one, and I think he'll mash. One, one of the things with that is, is that you do kind of think that, okay, in, in situations where you, know, you, you look at it and say, okay, they bring in that lefty in late innings for Howard, you know, do you, and then right. do you say, okay, well, we've got a, you know, we've got that, a counter move. That team is so left-handed heavy. I, I really feel like Darren Ruff's going to get, at bats against left-handed pitchers for the for for the Phillies, but I think long term I like Gaddis better too. The amazing thing to me is I I, I don't have this you know, I don't have the password on my iPad, and I don't, uh, but I was checking his winter ball stats before he came in. I'm pretty sure all 13 of Evan Gaddis's home runs of winter ball have coming as right-handed pitchers. He's hitting like around 100 against left-handers in Venezuela. So to me, he, what you do in winter ball is you get more reps, you get more playing time, which he needed. He missed some time with injuries this year. So he's getting that. He's having success, which helps his confidence level. 
I've thrown this comp out before. I, I think he has a lot of similarities to Josh Willingham. I don't think he has quite that upside. I mean, but no, but if you said pre two thousand twelve, right? If you said pre two thousand twelve, Josh Willingham, I, I'd say that that's reasonable. There's probably a thirty percent chance that Evan Gaddis has that kind of career. I haven't talked to a scout yet about him who didn't think he could hit. Just the age and where you fit him. I don't. Th- I think he and Darren Ruff are equally modest defenders in left field. And with the Braves' injury issues at catcher right now, where they lost David Ross and Brian McCann's returning from the shoulder, I don't think Evan Gaddis is in contention there at all. He's really taken off in winter ball since he became the DH. Right. So I, to me, their best position for both of them is hitting. batter's box. Exactly. So, but I, I'm with you. I take Gaddis. Uh, anything else in the Braves? I mean, I think JJ. We also had some. Uh, the Braves don't have the. It's not a great top ten, but I think that even down to eleven, which is uh, Nick Ahmed, who I like, Nick Ahmed. That. They have some. They have some guys. There are some pieces here for the Braves. There when you consider that their big league roster, three of their, you could argue their three best players, Hayward, uh, Freeman, and uh, I would argue Anderson Simmons is on the short list. Uh, they're all 23 years old, so it's a very young big league roster, a very young pitching staff. So their farm system can be complementary players right now. Uh, who was the pitcher we we're talking about that is going to make more than the Braves pitching starting pitchings? Uh, I thought it was Zach Greinke. Yeah, Greinke will make more than the Braves' starting rotation will in 2013. Yeah. I mean, so that's, that, that's I think how a lot the Braves of pitchers can do will. it. But that's, that's how the Braves can do it when, when you don't have really anyone who's making a ton of money. Yeah, when you have Miner and Delgado and Chris Medlin. Uh, Brandon Beachy. Brandon Beachy coming back uh, to Julio Tehran possibly contending. And Julio Tehran had a horrible start to winter ball. Uh, last three starts for Lise were tremendous. Um, and two hits in 16 and two-thirds innings. So that's... It's encouraging to see those signs of life from Julio Toronto really had a very forgettable 2012 season, but does still have arm strength. And it's also an organization that doesn't really have guys who have a ton of upside. Like I said, really the rest of that top 10's complimentary pieces. On the other hand, there's the Marlins, JJ, and they do have one of the best farm systems in baseball now, which you better after you trade away all your big league players. They do, and it's interesting that when you say that, I don't think it's still a particularly deep system, but you know, actually, I think it is. I think they do have depth. Everybody afterwards, they have a lot of relievers and fourth outfielder kind of guy, but they, I think they have a lot of guys who are going to be big leaguers okay. in that 15 to 30. Like Kyle Jensen is their 31. No, no that's okay. I didn't Kyle Jensen that. mashed in the fall league. He's older. I think he's kind of a stiff he's, in terms of I – don't, I don't think he's a huge he's, athlete. But, but he, he's a guy who – He's been a lot of top 30s. There will be absolutely a lot. Because there's track record and there's big-time power. So they have, a, and that's the thing. So they have a lot of their complementary pieces are in the fifteen to thirty range, and they do have a lot of complementary pieces. So I, I was actually surprised by how good their depth was at first but, blush. First blush, I would say it's not great, but like, and you're like at number ten. I talked to a scout this year who really liked Adam Conley. Oh, I did. You I, know, you know, guys, there's some guys who really think he can be a really good starter. I mean, a good starting pitcher, or could be like a, a very good relief pitcher, not just a lefty specialist. No, and. And at the top end, they have at the top of their list, they have definite uh, as much impact. impact prospects as you're talking. I yeah, mean. we like their top two quite a bit. We've talked about that a lot on the podcast. I mean, Marcelo Zuna is a, a you know, great high risk, high reward number five guy. At, at number five, if you have that yeah, guy exactly. number two, you're worried. If you have number five, you're you're doing well. And I think Andrew Heaney is kind of one of the better stealth pitching prospects in the minors. I don't think people think of him as elite, but he had a tremendous season this year. He was the probably the best. Well, not probably. He may have been the best college pitcher in the draft on some teams' draft boards. I know he was in that mix. Some teams liked him better than Mark Appel. So um, that's a that, that's a really good. It's a good top ten. Jose Urena is pretty 
intriguing upside guy with a big time arm. JT Realmuto is very good. Yeah, Realmuto and and, uh, and uh, Rob Brantley. Brantley that they got from the from the Tigers. It's it's a really good top ten. I guess the thing is, JJ, does anybody really care? You know, I don't think so. Not in Miami. Uh, and no. Poisoned. Uh, it's a poisoned. It's a poisoned uh, well, farm system. I, I want to come system. back to the Mets for a minute. Which yeah, is, we, we have a couple Twitter questions about the, it. the Mets. To me, what strikes me about the Mets though is, is that when we talked about that the Orioles have had a, a, a an interesting offseason because they have not kind of tried to reinforce. Doesn't feel like they've really tried to reinforce success. I have. If you ask me, what is the Mets plan? I, I can't give you an answer because it. If you look at this team, it's. It was clearly, you know, one of the one of the bottom dwellers in the NL West. I mean, NL East last year. I see no reason that you would say there would be anything different from that this year. And I do not think, even after this trade, I don't think you look at this Mets system and say, okay, well, clearly they're pointing towards 2014 or they're pointing towards 2015. Right. I don't see the year they're pointing towards. I'm I'm with you on that one. Even just looking at their future lineup from this. At a post deal, if you slip in Darno uh, and you slip in Syndergaard, and you're looking down the line, say in 2016, Darno, Ike Davis, Chikini, David Wright, Ruben Tejada, Wilmer Flores and left, Brandon Nimmo, Corey Vaughn, Wheeler, Harvey, Syndergaard, Nice. It's just that's really where your hope is. Your hope is basically these not, power right-handers. But that's Wheeler, not a lot of hope. I, I think it's not enough. Wheeler, Harvey, Syndergaard is very nice. Your your hope really is is that the Mets aren't as broke as the rumors are, and that you know, okay, once they get out from under some contracts, they become a player again in the free agent market. Exactly. But the problem with that is, is and, that and you also do. I think Matt Eddie made a nice point. They do have there is a, some depth of talent at their lower levels. Their Brooklyn team, not Brooklyn, yeah, no, they're Brooklyn, Brooklyn Kingsport, their GCL team, they're bringing back. But th- those short season levels, they really did have a lot of arms they were encouraged by. They have no left-handers. I think Steven Matz, who pitched six games this year for the first time as a professional, and I think he was a 2009 draft pick, yeah. he's their top left-hander on their depth chart. Um, but they do have some power right-handed arms. And, you know, to me, Wilmer Flores is one of the more fascinating prospects still out there because he and just seems like he doesn't profile. Not because we think he's one of the best prospects out there, but fascinating because how do you, where does he fit? Yeah, where does he fit? They played him at shortstop so long. It seems like he's like a 20-runner. Mm-hmm. It sounds like he's a first baseman down the line. He did hit 18 home runs this year, and he sounds like he has feel to hit. Oh, yeah. Could this be a guy who hits enough to be a first baseman, J.J.? Do you think he'll ever do that? The scouts I've talked to always say no. Yeah. The scouts I always talk to, they, they have that same – most of them are befuddled. They say they think he can hit some, but they don't think he can hit enough. If you put him in left – he doesn't run well enough to hit right. enough to do that. And if you put him at first, he doesn't probably – You maybe you can. I mean, like, look, James Loney keeps getting jobs. Right. He'd can have he to be, be a slick fielding first baseman. Right. I'm, I'm with you. Can and he produce right. what James Loney does? Yeah, maybe he can do that. I think he's got a higher ceiling than that offensively. Yeah. I really do. I mean, that, to me, that's his hope. Yeah. I'm, I'm, most, I'm more interested in him now than I was even a couple of years ago because the power is starting to show up. And feel for hit. He's always been talked about as a guy who has feel for hitting, and now he's starting to produce some pop. I don't know if he's a first division regular, but could he have like a? I'm trying to see the thing. There's no right-handed hitters though who have Lyle Overbay careers. They're left-handed hitters. That's why I think of him as a guy's going to hit 15 to 20 home runs a year. If he was an everyday regular, he'd hit 15 to 20 home runs, 40 doubles, 280 to 300. Is that a regular? Maybe it's 30 doubles because on 10 of those he just can't. 
through. <laughs> well, I don't think Lyle Overbay was legging out any, any extra base hits, too. But it sounds like he has – his feel for hit makes me think he could be a second division regular, not a championship first baseman. But I do think he's back to being a regular. It's just a second division type of guy. And the Phillies, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty random farm system, J.J. It's just it's, not – it's not one – it's not a farm system befitting a team that didn't make the playoffs. You know? By the way, speaking of, if you want, if you if the Wilmer Flores discussion interested you, Michael Franco is the next <laughs> Wilmer Flores. He sure sounds like it. Uh, slow, a slow uh, 18, 20 year old. Not a good place to start. I mean, when you're a 20 runner and you're not catching, as you know, as as this write up includes, uh, you know, you've seen it if you're a BS subscriber. His seven points, his seven seven second, 60 yard dash time scared off scouts. <laughs> okay. If you're not really that familiar with 60-yard dash times, when a guy turns in like a 6-4, you go, wow. If you're on the other side of 7, you go, okay, so running's not really his. If you're on the other side of 7, you better be a catcher, basically. Running's not really his thing. Or Paul Konerka. If you run a 7-7, you know, that's when the scout who timed you, who's, you know, 55 years old, goes, man, I could go out there and, you know, rip off a 7-7. That is crazy. That is crazy. And he's a third baseman, and they – and so that's where it's it's just an interesting. I mean, he has some first step qu- quickness, better than his sixty step quickness. <laughs> um, but that know. just makes me think of uh, I forget which staffer it was. Maybe it was Connor Glassy, somebody on the office who's too young to have seen Ron Say play. No, it was Matt Eddy, had never seen Ron Say run. So I found the battle of the what is it, the superstars. Mm-hmm. Found the superstars where he ran and the <laughs> so he ran faster than seven seven. I guarantee it, but. It wasn't pretty. Um, I would like to see Michael Franco run now as opposed to just seeing his time. But what what I find interesting in this Phillies system is, is that if you rewound this a couple of years, they had that whole group of pitchers that were coming up together who – Colvin. Colvin. Cozart. May. Cozart. Julio Rodriguez was and kind Pettibone. of – And Pettibone. Those All are the five guys five together guys at Lakewood. Five guys together. Now they've traded away Cozart. Mm, five guys. But – the the interesting part about it to me is is that this is where you talk about the how difficult it is to develop pitching or the vagarities of pitching and all that. I don't know if any one of those guys now is kind of at the same level that they were thought of at that point two years ago. Well, actually, I think Pettibone is thought of more highly. Yeah, that, I guess he's than the he one because he, he was not thought of that much. At Obviously, that they've traded Cozart and May, and those guys are still guys. I mean, Cozart has some of the best stuff in the minor leagues. I mean, he had the blister issue last year and. I think most scouts I've talked to think he's a closer. You know, the fastball mm-hmm. gets a little straight. So that's why his prospect stock has gone down a little bit. I think the same thing with May. He doesn't throw enough strikes. Um, Colvin, just the makeup, I think, is, is a big issue there. He had just, he's just not a consistent pre- preparation guy, not a consistent effort guy, and that has caught up to him. You know, his natural talent only and, goes so far. Rodriguez, Rodriguez is the guy where he, when he was doing it then, everyone said, yeah, he feels to pitch exactly. and all that, but you got to be worried about what that guy's going to do. And he reached the upper levels. Well, he's reached the upper levels. Stu- you know, the results have backed up a little bit. And the You'll best way to put it is, is he was Rule 5 eligible, if I remember correctly. And yeah, and he wasn't taken. He wasn't taken. You'll see him in the in the World Baseball Classic for Puerto Rico in the, in March. But Pettibone's the guy who's come the farthest. But, again, he's not an impact guy. He's more of a back of the rotation, you know, kind of a – Joe Blanton type. There's basically. not a lot of impact guys on this top ten. No, there's not. Um, Roman Quinn is the maybe the highest impact guy in the top ten if he can stay in the middle infield. But I know that was a real question for people uh, coming out of high school in the Florida Panhandle. I, I, the guy who's the impact guy for me, JJ. Not that I I didn't rank this system. But I'm I'm 
I'm a Ethan Martin guy. I believe yeah, in Ethan Martin. I know he's wild. I know he's uh, does not have command, but I still think the athleticism is there. The stuff is still there, and the progress is there. So he's my favorite 79 walk in 158 inning pitcher in the entire minor leagues. So put it that way. If you if you wanted to pick me one pitcher of the minors who walks 4.5 per nine, and I still think could do it. Ethan Your Martin's guy. my guy. I, I just see the improvement. The trend lines are positive. So um, we did have a Mets question. We should have asked this before. I apologize for the disjointed nature of this Twitter question. But Doug Lord asks – Doug Plord, I'm sorry. A long-time listener, first, not a first-time caller. Um, if you were Alderson of the Mets and you were given the chance between Noah Syndergaard and uh, Sanchez – I forget, Aaron Sanchez, who are you picking? And no way am I saying they were given the choice. Just curious who you would take. I was more of a Sanchez guy coming into the year. And in, during the season, I think we had this question during the podcast, like in June. Mm-hmm. But after reading the reports, I think I'm a little bit more of a Syndergaard guy. So I think I would rather have Syndergaard. I, I'd say Syndergaard. It's it's not it's not a, a, a massive gulf by any means. Right. Place, but I do feel like, as we said, I think that Syndergaard was of their three because Nicolino was traded uh, as well in the Marlins deal. But of their three of those guys – I feel like that Syndergaard was the best combination of stuff and, and feel for pitching. I agree. And then Roger Munter, Giants fan, but uh, asks a non-Giants question transition, transitioning us to the Nationals. Assuming health and development for Anthony Rendon, how would you shake out the Nats infield over the coming three to four years? Is Zimmerman's shoulder a worry? And the obvious spot to me that's going to come open is second base because I just don't think Daniel Espinosa, Danny Espinosa is sustainable at 180 strikeouts. And he just – he was whiff-tastic in 2012. He still had a productive season. But and you think Lombardozzi long-term is the, the I think he's a, I think he's a utility or... guy. And so I think that, the to me, if the Nationals are mapping this out long-term, they would see if Anthony Rendon can handle second base and do that in a short-term period. And that long-term, Ryan Zimmerman moves over to first base. He's a big guy. As he gets older, he goes to first base. I think he'd be a – a gold glove first baseman, kind of like a Teixeira type first baseman, uh, when good Teixeira. Um, but I don't, I don't think I'm not that worried about Ryan Zimmerman's shoulder yet. Um, he makes throws from all kinds of different angles, and he seems like he's a streaky defender, streakier than he was expected to be. But he's also got more power than he was expected to be. So uh, the short answer is I don't see Anthony Rendon moving him off of third base. And as I intimated earlier, I'm with Matt Eddie on this. Sooner than later, the National League is going to have a designated hitter. I just, I think it's a matter of when. The, the thing with that that I worry a little bit about with Rendon, if you move him to second, that Rendon's problems are all basically – his injury problems have Correct. all been ankle-feet related. You're yeah, except take, for the one sho- but the yeah, shoulder. The but shoulder, the, yeah. But, but the saying, both but ankles. The, the he's, big, yeah. yeah, he's messed up both ankles. You're right. The shoulder is something that seems like it's been clear – you know, the repetitive, I should right. say, injuries have been all, all feet and ankles. Second base is a tougher position for that than third because yeah. – the Guys reality are, is, is that you are turning a pivot with your back sometimes to the guy coming in, and you're going to take impacts, you know, basically lower body impacts. Yeah. That that worries me. I still think that that's the logical place for him long term. I and agree. I think his I think that he profiles better there too because with Rendon, I think you you are talking about the average. He's more of a hitter than he is a power hitter. He's got some power in there. He definitely has power, but I think it's more like average power. I don't think it's super loud power. Maybe it's more 55 if you're slapping a grade on him. I mean, he did, like, 
judging him off his numbers, what he actually did this year, he didn't hit for much average in Double A, but his and his power numbers were decent there. But in the fall and, league, it was more hit and gap over power. And, and, I'll, and I'll give him a somewhat of a pass on this year in that sure. he, he did have a, another significant injury. Sure. Um, but but I do worry with that because really to me, you know. <laughs> I, I've been. I've You're been the low man on Rendon. I'm the, low I, man, but, but with, with not, good reason. And I'm not low on because I don't think he can play. My it is though is is that the first thing you have to do with it as the Nationals is is how do we keep this guy healthy? And one thing with that is is that okay, I, I do worry at second base. I think second base more than shortstop, which he's not going to play for them, honestly, right. or third base is a riskier position for him because second basemen get beat up. Even if you have good injury, you know, a, a better injury history than Rendon has, a lot of second basemen get beat up. Yeah, I mean, Aaron Fitt writes that his arm strength has backed up since his college days, and he's lost a step or two after three ankle injuries. So he's a slightly below average runner. I mean, those are – there's some issues there. He's just not the guy he used to be in terms of uh, his explosiveness and his ceiling. His ceiling is lower than it used to be. He can hit – I'm, I'm fairly convicted that he's going to hit, and the question is how much impact – and and then the question is, so where does he fit? And, you know, when you're talking about a guy who's six feet tall, at long term, you don't see necessarily a first base answer in Washington. I don't see him – he doesn't profile there. Um, you would you move it, him to I the mean, outfield? Not if he's a below-average runner. Maybe he has to go to left field with Harper and Wright, Span and center. Maybe Jason Worth winds up moving to first base long term. But You can make these things work, and if he hits the way he's going to hit, they'll you'll figure out a, a right. solution for it. Because But first, the things – the to-do list first is play 140 games. Here, here's play get, 100 games. Yeah, get 120 games yeah. or so in in a season. Stay healthy and do something. Because not again, nothing against. It's not Rendon's fault. He's gotten hurt a lot. But the reality is, is that we haven't seen the Anthony Rendon that we're talking about that we expect to see really since 2011. Oh, be before that. 10, 2010. Sorry, 10. Yeah, 2010. Yeah, 2010. 11 was the shoulder injury where you didn't yeah. see the pop. 2012 was the injuries, you know, with the ankle where he missed most yep. of the season. So we're going back to 2010. That's not yep. – it's not like we're trying to remember a guy of what he did in 99. It's not ancient history, but it's it's getting further in the rearview mirror than you'd like it to be. You want to see in 2013 more than anything help. Absolutely. Oh, I will always think fondly, though, of the uh, Anthony Rendon cover, uh, the college preview issue, the glove story cover. Mm -hmm. That was a good. We had a couple of good college preview issue covers in a row there. College preview issues on my mind, JJ. It's a, it's it's looming in it's the next month. It's, it's, bottom, bottom, it is time for like the transition, basically, for me from 2012 season is completely in the books now that we're done with the handbook to the 2013 draft and college season begins. Mm -hmm. So it's actually uh that that's a, a that will sustain me through the holidays uh, as far as my baseball fix. I hope there are no more trades, but. But one running joke we had in the office, and we don't—we're not trying to pick on these guys, but you good look, way to wrap. You, but you look at this—you look at this Nationals list, and you know, as I put it, it's like does Sammy Solis and Anthony Rendon compare war stories? Like, you know, man, you know, okay, well, you know, when I had this injury, I, you know, I spent that time in the training. Right? Room. They battling. Who's your favorite spot. trainer? Who do you think is yeah. the best massage in the organization? And, and, and Matt Perk is knocking on the door, going, "Hey guys, how are you guys? You know." Uh, you know, let me know some of these secrets. Either that or he's walking around silently kind of creepily. Because Matt Perk, let's face it, he revels in being the flaky lefty. He's almost, uh, you know, this 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 issue in particular, J.J., showed off some of our lesser mugshots in the in the magazine. <laughs> Matt Perk, who, whose hat is never uh, in the right place. I'm very disappointed that the Nationals still have Christian Garcia in a Yankees hat on MLB Press Box. 
Um, that that disappointed me. Uh, Matt Skull look, looks a little goofy in that mugshot. Not his, it's not his most serious look. And then there's Nate Carnes, <laughs> who is 24, but looks like 40 in his uh, mugshot. I, I can't remember the Twitter commenter. I'm 40, side. Nate, so I can tell you what 40 looks like. You look 40. But I I, I can't remember the Twitter commenter said it. But we had a Twitter commenter coming at Baseball America. I want to say yesterday saying. Is that Nate Carnes or Nate Carnes' dad? And, and if it is Nate Carnes, is his date of birth off by 10 years? And is that Roman Quinn or is that Roman Quinn's son? <laughs> because Roman Quinn looks about 12 in that mugshot, as does Gavin Cicchini, which oh. for the book, I was so <laughs> outraged by Gavin Cicchini's mugshot making him look 12 that we got we looked at new summer photos of him, and yes, he has had his braces removed. So Mets fans, I think, will have a little bit more confidence when they see what Gavin Cicchini actually looks like as opposed to what he used to look like. Um, with his summer 2011 USA Baseball mugshot, and uh, to, to, to I just to me the sometimes the mugshots mean more than they should. But some of those Chikini and and Quinn, I just couldn't believe how young those guys looked. It made me feel ancient, frankly. But well, everyone, thank you for for all the po- listening to the podcast all year. Thank you for your BA, especially BA subscribers. Thank you. We could not do what we do. Without the uh, people you know, out there, you know, who subscribe, and we talk and about enjoy. how fun, talk about how fun the job is, and like JJ said, just can't do it unless people buy the magazine, buy the prospect handbook, eight hundred eight four five two seven two six, or baseballamerica.com slash store. Absolutely, and uh, we've got our Christmas party today, so we'll give thanks for a lot of things, but uh, definitely need to thank our listeners and our subscribers for making it all possible. And that is one reminder, though, if we could ask you a favor, as we you know, got a little, maybe a little free time in the next week or so. If you like us, if you enjoy what you hear on this podcast, feel free to write a review on us uh, on uh, on iTunes. Uh. Yeah, the podcast, uh, as far as like downloads, has done very well recently, and we appreciate all the uh, uh, the positive uh, reviews. Any feedback is always welcome, either on the iTunes or at the podcast at baseballamerica dot com or on, on our Twitter. Twitters. So again, thanks everyone. We hope you have a uh, wonderful next week. We'll be back. In 2013, we're not going to have a podcast next week. Uh, I, I think we can – John and I will be – we may go through say. some withdrawal, but we're, we're going to avoid one next week. And uh, we'll see you in 2013. Happy New Year as well, everyone.